Luke 24, verse 36. We're in a series entitled From the Cross to the Crown as we've looked at just a few of the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, his glorious resurrection, and beyond. We started with the betrayal. Judas was one of the 12, yet he betrayed Jesus' trust, friendship, and leadership and gave him over to the chief priest and religious leaders. Then we looked at his denial. Peter was the one who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Yet when Jesus was arrested and beaten, Peter denied knowing him three times. Then we looked at his condemnation. The Roman governor Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He was convicted when he learned Jesus claimed to be the son of God. Yet he blew at the political winds and gave Jesus over to death. And then we looked at his crucifixion. The greatest injustice in the history of the world was when they put to death the one who gave his life as a ransom for many. Now last week, we celebrated his resurrection with a sermon entitled, Risen. Jesus rose from the dead as a first fruit. That is a guarantee that you also will be raised from the dead and you will have a resurrection body that will be glorified, spiritual, and imperishable. Yet today, the title of the sermon is Doubted. Despite seeing the resurrected Jesus, the Bible says the disciples were troubled and doubts arose in their heart. It is true of every one of us that we experience paradoxes in the Christian life. For example, we know the truth, but we have unanswered questions. We have faith but we struggle with doubt. We have peace, but sometimes we're fearful. Those, by the way, are some of the reasons we gather each week for worship, because we need the weekly time to be equipped, edified, and encouraged as we face the challenges of life. Christians are not escapists from reality. We're the ones who face reality. And a reality is that sometimes we become troubled and doubts arise in our hearts. That's part of the human condition. You've heard Nathan and I mention the name Charles Spurgeon. He's called the Prince of Preachers, probably the greatest non-apostolic preacher God gave to humanity. In the 1800s, his sermons were being printed and sent around the world. Yet during his ministry, he wrote this. The thought crossed my mind, which I abhorred but could not conquer, that there was no God, no Christ, no heaven, no hell, and that all my prayers were but a farce, and that I might as well have whistled to the winds or spoken to the howling waves. So I want you to follow along with me, if you would, in your Bibles in Luke chapter 24. It's good to have your Bibles open and take notes in your Bible because those notes will bless you greatly in the years to come. Let's read Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. The Bible says, while they were telling these things... He himself stood in their midst and said, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. 
Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. So why do doubts and fears arise? Well, let's first consider this. When it's hard to believe. When it's hard to believe. Verse 36 says Jesus appeared to them in a resurrected body, but verse 37 says they thought they were seeing a spirit. And verse 41 says they still couldn't believe it. And our first thought might be, how could they not believe? But let's go back three years in their world. The disciples were working hard, trying to make a living. They were everyday Jews, minding their own business. And the miracle man shows up and says, follow me. And Matthew walks away from a lucrative tax collecting position. Peter and Andrew and James and John leave the fishing business. They left immediately to follow Jesus, and they were thrust into a life they never imagined. Jesus stopped storms, fed multitudes, made, made, turned water into wine. They watched him heal people sometimes all day long. And this was not sleight of hand. Paralytics got up and walked. The son of the widow at Nain and Jesus' friend Lazarus rose from the dead. No one has ever seen anything like this. In Luke chapter 10, then Jesus gives them divine power. They preach the gospel. They heal people, and demons are subject to them. But eventually, things become very unsettling. Jesus said, one of you will betray me. He's deeply troubled in Gethsemane. And then Judas shows up with a mob, and everything unravels. He's seized and beaten by the chief priests and Pharisees. They jam a crown of thorns down on his holy head. They mock him. His, their nasty spit drips from his face. And he's passed from Annas to Caiaphas to Pilate to Herod and back to Pilate who condemned him. And God in human flesh is nailed to a cross. As Jesus was being crucified, perhaps, this is just speculation, Perhaps they had a similar thought to the crowd that mocked him. The crowd that mocked him said, he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. Well, couldn't this man who raised others from the dead come down from the cross? Then darkness falls over the land for three hours, and maybe they hear about the one in whom they fully trusted. Maybe they hear about what he said during those hours. He cried out, God, why have you forsaken me? Well, if God has forsaken Jesus, where does that leave me? Maybe they hear about him saying, I thirst. But they remember in John chapter 4 that Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water I give him shall never thirst. What gives? 
Then he commends the care of his mother to John. He's not going to come down off that cross, is he? And sure enough, he says, it is finished. Into thy hands I commit my spirit, and he dies, and that's it. And everything they trusted in, everything they believed in, everything they fully gave their life to the last three years just disintegrated. Let's put ourselves in their shoes. Imagine the devastation in their hearts and their minds, probably the feeling of foolishness or failure. Then they hear about an empty tomb. Peter marveled at it. The Bible says John saw and believed, but then it says they did not understand that Jesus must rise from the dead. Mark says the women told the disciples about the empty tomb, but they didn't believe. Luke says they thought the story was nonsense. I mean, imagine the confusion that's swirling. They know what they saw him do in this life, but then they see him murdered, and now what's this business about an empty tomb? Well, what happened to his body, and are these powerful Jews who killed him, are they coming after us next? I mean, this is chaos. There are so many unanswered questions. This doesn't make sense, and by the time they see him, they're troubled and doubts arise in their hearts. This can reflect our experience. We can have glory days with Jesus, times that are full of fervor and excitement and life is going well, and then severe problems arise. The bottom falls out, and you're filled with grief, or pain or disease devastates your body. The workplace grinds you into dust, or you have trouble with a child, or trouble with a marriage. And you begin to wonder as it goes on, where is God in all this? Why does God promise peace when I don't have it? Why am I afraid too often? Why, does, why is this such a mess? Why doesn't Jesus just come and take us all home? There are times when life can make it hard to believe. But then secondly, there are times when it seems like it's too good to be true. Now in the verses before this, there are two men walking on a road to a village called Emmaus. And a third man joins them. The two lament about all that happened with this man named Jesus the Nazarene. He was a prophet mighty in deed and word and in the sight of God and all the people, but they crucified him, and now there's an empty tomb. The third man explains from the Old Testament all the things concerning Jesus. Then he opens their eyes and they recognize he is Jesus. So the two rushed to the disciples to tell them the good news, but look at verses 33 and 34. The disciples have already heard the good news. Jesus had appeared to Peter. So they swapped stories, but then look at verse 36. Jesus stands in their midst. He says, peace be with you, but look at verse 41. It says they could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. But this happens to us. You're born again. Like the disciples, you've come to faith in Jesus. But somewhere in life, up pops a nagging question. I mean, is all this real? When I got saved, did anything really happen? And then I look around and increasingly our culture hates the biblical Jesus. 
There's a cultural echo chamber going on that tells us what we believe is wrong, even evil. Yet Jesus promises to come and take us out of all this and give us eternal bliss. Could all this be too good to be true? Now, why would we begin to think that way? Difficult life experiences can train us to be doubtful and maybe even cynical. You may have been involved in a business situation, but you were taken advantage of. You were swindled, and now it's once bitten, twice shy. It's hard for you to trust. Maybe you were married to someone who was wonderful before you were married. That person professed Jesus as Lord. It seemed like that was the person God brought to you. As soon as you said, I do, they became a different person. Verbally abusive or dishonest or overwhelmingly selfish. Divorce was the sad end. It seemed like it was too good to be true, and it turns out it was. Or maybe that's true of you spiritually. Just the pain of life or the actions of other believers seem to betray what's in this book. And you would say that experiencing the joy of the Lord just seems like a fanciful dream. In all these scenarios, you don't want to set yourself up for more pain. You've been burned before. You decided it's not going to happen to me again. If it seems like it's too good to be true, it probably is. The last time the disciples completely gave themselves to Jesus, it all came crashing down. So now they don't believe because of joy and amazement. It seemed too good to be true. Now at this point... Natural man thinks to erase the doubts and fears, more evidence needs to be presented. I mean, that's all that needs to be done, and then man will make the logical choice. But notice here that visual evidence did not bring about belief. Verse 36, he stood in their midst. And yet verse 37 says, in essence, they thought they were seeing a ghost. I mean, superstition overrode what was right in front of their eyes. So what Jesus said in verse 38 cut to the heart of the matter. He said, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Well, the answer is doubts arose because they were troubled and they were troubled because of their doubts. And visual evidence did not bring about belief. Physical evidence did not bring about belief. Verse 39, Jesus said, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. See, touch, feel, tactile, tangible evidence. They still didn't believe. So Jesus took a piece of broiled fish, and in verse 43, he ate it. That didn't move the needle. Neither visual nor physical evidence brought about belief. You would think the next thing would. But biblical evidence did not bring about belief. Verse 44, he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he called on them to remember the things that he had told them, specifically the things written about him, verse 44, in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. With that statement, he referred to the entire Old Testament as we have it today. The law is the first five books in the Bible. It's called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. Mosaic authorship. Then there's the prophets. And the Jews divided that into two categories. One was the former prophets. 
Joshua judges Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel is one book, and 1st and 2nd Kings is one book. The latter prophets, as they called it, were Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets. The third group was what they called the writings or the Psalms, and that included Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, whom they considered a statesman instead of a prophet, Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. First and Second Chronicles is one book. Their arrangement of the Old Testament ended with Second Chronicles. By the way, no apocrypha. He explained how the Old Testament revealed him, yet they still didn't believe. I think the joy of the gospel can easily get beyond our grasp because of life's difficulties. And some of you would agree with this. You'd say, look, I toughened up because life got tough. But in the process, without realizing it, we closed off our heart because we just couldn't bear another hurt. And you would say today, I want to believe today. I want my faith to be deeper, but I'm troubled and doubts arise in my heart. Now what? It seems like there's nothing I can do. There's something Jesus can do. Verse 45 is the key to this passage. Look at it. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The ability to believe is a gift from God. It isn't something you gin up. He opens your eyes to understand what was previously not understood. Listen, God will never withhold from you. Do you want to believe? Then ask God for faith. Ask him to open your mind, to understand the scriptures, to answer your doubts and calm your troubles. Now some say, okay, I understand this, but listen, I have this attitude. God, you, this happened in my life and I don't like it, so you need to prove yourself to me. That will never happen. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There has to be a humble submission, so ask him to open your mind in that regard, saying, God, I recognize that you are God and I am not. Would you open my eyes so my heart is at peace and my doubts are erased? Now, prior to this, there were numerous times that Jesus told the disciples something, and as we read it, it's just inexplicable to us that they didn't understand Mark 9, 31, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. And the next verse says, they didn't understand this statement. I mean, honestly, what's hard to understand about that? Luke 9, 44, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so they would not perceive it. Luke 18, he told them he would be scourged and killed, but verse 34 there says the disciples understood none of these things. So ask God to open your mind to understand the scriptures, and you'll see this, that he's prophesied in the scriptures. Verse 46, thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. He's speaking of the Old Testament. The New Testament was not yet written. Some of you will remember I preached through the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis last year. We saw that he and many other Old Testament people were pictures of the coming Messiah. They bore characteristics of him. They pointed to him. 
The major and minor prophets prophesy about the Messiah. Isaiah prophesied about his suffering, his silence, and his crucifixion 700 years before it happened. So one of the ways to help erase doubt is to understand these prophecies about Jesus were written many years before he came by men in different geographical locations, different cultural contexts, different eras, yet the prophecies all match up and clearly point to Jesus as Lord and Savior. He was prophesied in the scriptures. He's proclaimed to all people, verse 47. Repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. You know, we can be troubled and have doubts arise in our heart because of our struggle with sin. To have battle with sin, I seem like I win, then I seem like I lose. And you might think, after all God has invested in me, how can I continue to sin like this? How can I deny him with my silence? How can I betray him by my chronic sin? If you are a believer... God holds nothing against you. Do you understand that? He holds nothing over your head. You might be afraid to fully give yourself to Jesus this morning because you're sure you will fail him. You failed him before. The one person in the world you don't trust is you, and you don't want to let Jesus down again. Well, here's a surprise. The only person who can fail Jesus is the one who thinks he'll never fail Jesus. And you say, yes, but I'm a Peter who has denied him. I'm even a Judas who has betrayed him. I'm a disciple who ran from the cross. Ephesians 1.7 says, we have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. His grace wiped away your sin. That's why he died and rose again. Luke chapter 4 says Jesus was sent, among other things, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. We see that, that passage and it says he was, came to proclaim the gospel to the poor and we read that, but we kind of miss that little phrase, favorable year of the Lord. That favorable year of the Lord refers in the Old Testament to the year of Jubilee. In the Old Testament, the Jubilee was to be proclaimed every 49 or 50 years. All debts were to be canceled and slaves sold into debt were to be liberated. And the Jubilee was observed exactly zero times. They never did it. So what was incomplete and not fulfilled in the Old Testament has been brought to perfection today through Jesus. Through saving faith, your sin debt has been canceled. Through saving faith, you are liberated from the slavery of sin. You're set free. And you might say, you know something? I've been looking for that kind of love my whole life. And maybe for the first time this morning, God has opened your eyes to understand the scriptures and you recognize that it's available through Jesus. This morning, God is reaching out to every single one of us. Some of you here may need to be saved. Your sin debt is not canceled. You're not free from the slavery of sin. Ask him for saving faith. Ask him to save you. Listen, he's not going to turn you down. 
And instead of a troubled heart and nagging doubts, you can have the peace of God and the eternal witness of the Holy Spirit that says you're a child of His. Some of you here today are saved, but you're troubled. Ask Him for peace. Ask Him to open your eyes to the Scriptures that bring you peace. Or maybe to recognize that something that is troubling you is ultimately something not to be feared at all. Do you have doubts? Ask Him to increase your faith. Ask Him to open your eyes to absorb this word that will strengthen your faith. And always remember that as a Christian, your debt is canceled and you are free from slavery, not because of anything you have done, but because of His glorious resurrection. Because He is alive, He can change you. He changed Peter from an impetuous, vacillating man. Vacillating, he went back and forth all the time. To a bold and unflinching gospel preacher. He changed a violent religious extremist named Paul into Saul. Excuse me, I got that backwards. He took a violent religious extremist named Saul and turned him into the apostle Paul. And he can calm your heart and diminish your doubt. And he can do it by resurrection power. Believe this. Because he is alive, he can change you. If Jesus is dead, then what explains the changed lives of people in this building? If Jesus is dead, what explains the genuine love that exists in this church? And if Jesus is dead, to pull it all the way back to the scripture that I read, why do men and women and boys and girls actively proclaim his name everywhere? He is proclaimed to all people, regardless of whether we're troubled and have doubts. He uses us to proclaim his name to all people. When you, as a Christian, speak, other people may see that, they probably will see it, as representing Christ. He's proclaimed to all people, and you are sent forth with a purpose. Verse 49. The disciples were to stay in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power on high. That's referring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost. And those disciples went out in supernatural power to proclaim forgiveness for sins to all nations. And the same Holy Spirit who anointed them is the same Holy Spirit that indwells you. I'm not saying our day is like Pentecost. I am saying that every believer can be filled with the Holy Spirit and every believer is sent forth with a purpose to proclaim Jesus' name everywhere. Sent forth with a purpose and brought to joy in worship. Verse 51, while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. But what's not said there is this. Jesus is with them. He's got his hands raised and he's blessing them. And suddenly he ascends into heaven. And I would think they would say, well, hang on a second. Where are you going? But despite that, what he left them with was cause for great joy and excitement and the thrill of knowing that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. So this morning, let's look at life with an eternal perspective. When we understand what our fate was before Jesus and what our future is with Jesus, rejoicing is a natural response to a supernatural gift. 
And if you do not believe this morning, maybe because of troubles or doubts, I want to make an appeal to you. One of Satan's greatest deceptions is to convince you that this gospel is for someone else. One writer put it this way, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, poor people think it's for the upper and middle class. The upper and middle class think it's for poor people. Depressed and anxious people think it's for those who aren't depressed and anxious. Those who aren't depressed and anxious think it's for those who are depressed and anxious. Rich people think everyone but they need it. Everyone else think it's the rich people who need it. Those who doubt think it's for those who don't doubt. Those who don't doubt think it's for those who do doubt. Listen, the gospel is for you. And if you've never believed, I don't want to encourage you to take that step of faith now. He will not turn you down. The young people say, yeah, I know, I'll get around to that when I'm old. And they get old and they never get around to it. So Jesus reaches out to you today in love and in reality to erase your doubt. We've seen from this passage, he's real. He, he walked this, the face of this earth, fully man and fully God. He was crucified. He rose again. He was given a resurrection body. I mean, you notice there he said, touch and feel and see. Feel and see. So he reaches out to you today to erase your doubt, to offer you a new life in him. Don't let the wonder of all this hold you back. Don't wait until you say, you know, I've got to have some more answers just let the wonder of this lead you to Jesus. Would you pray with me?